Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, here we go. It is a Tuesday edition of Loving Liberty. Now, I look forward to Tuesdays for a lot of reasons. Number one, I got Monday behind me, so and I survived, obviously. Here I am. It's also because I get a chance to visit with my friend Suzanne Sherman. That's what I'm doing today. Hello, Suzanne. Well, hello, my friend. I thought you were going to say it was Taco Tuesday. Oh, there's that, too. See, it just gets better. There's that, too. Thank wow. you for thinking of me first, though. I'm so flattered. Yes, it's, it's, it's a close second behind, you know, Suzanne, is Taco Tuesday, which I know is big for a lot of people. Now, you you apparently just survived a, a small weather event uh, from your undisclosed broadcast location. Everything cool on your end? Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I'm way up a remote mountain canyon coming up a Colville, and off of that canyon is yet another one. So this wind comes through essentially two wind tunnels, and I was just looking out. I guess we couldn't call it a real tornado, but it's a dust devil. And, man, I, I feel for those that have to live through the real thing. We've had a few come through here, and it it sounds kind of like when you're in the drier section of a car wash and you see stuff go flying. And I have a beast of a greenhouse that is thus far, knock on wood, made it through these. But, yeah, a little bit of a distraction there right before the show. All right. Well, you know, I'm sure Greta Thunberg would have some kind of an explanation for us, followed by, how dare you? How dare you? For laughing at it. <laughs> now, for those who don't know, Suzanne is one of my favorite people to talk with because she is one of the people who gets federalism. She understands what it is. And, and Suzanne, we have a great article to discuss today. Before we go there, though, I want to see if we can can kind of define the terms here a little bit. People hear federalism, and I did this for years, and I think, oh, federal government, that's what it means. It, in other words, if, if you're practicing federalism, that means everything must flow to the federal government. And I was dead wrong. Yeah. How was I wrong? You know, this is, I, I like to go up to, um, I like to go to dictionary.com and look at some of these, these uh, dictionaries they have there and the definitions they have, because a lot of people turn to these to get their information. And it really is, um, you see frequently federal and national are considered to be synonymous. And what happens is we don't understand that when the Constitutional Convention was going on in 1787, that the delegates were sent there to merely improve upon the Articles of Confederation. What we really had was a coup. James Madison, Edmund Randolph, the Virginia Coalition showed up a few days early, and he revealed the Virginia Plan, which was really a national system. They advocated a strong central government. Robert Yates, I talked about this this morning, he became Brutus. Uh, he was a delegate from New York. He and John Lansing left because they did not have the authority to do what was being proposed at the convention. And Again, a national system with a strong central government, as, as Alexander Hamilton proposed, these states would be mere subsidiaries of the new government. And the other delegates said, look, we're going to shut this down if you keep this up. We want a federal government, meaning we have a centralized government with adequate resources to perform limited responsibilities. And clearly what we're seeing today is a, is a complete inversion of what was voted upon in the ratification debates because the national government proposal, the Virginia plan, didn't even make it out of the Philadelphia Convention. Well, and I, I mistakenly thought, you know, federal, federalism were, were interchangeable terms, and they're not. It describes a system, but you correct me if I'm wrong. I think we, I think we see eye to eye on this, but 
under the Federalist system, there, there was more power afforded to the states. In other words, the states were still sovereign, but there was that central government that, that had, uh, I guess, what they would term supreme authority in the Constitution, the Supremacy Clause, for those areas of common interest where it was delegated authority by the states that created it. Now, am I yeah, off absolutely. base? No, the, the only minor tweak I would make to that is when we say the states were afforded, because then it assumes almost it's just a semantic uh, kind of feeling you get from this when we say, well, this is what the states got out of it. They created the general government. What was not delegated to the general government, they retained. It wasn't afforded. It almost feels like, you know, when you say that word afforded, like it was handed to them. And conversely, what is true is they handed whatever powers the general government had uh, from themselves to the general government. Anything they wanted to take back could also be taken back at any time. Also, another one people don't understand, because, again, as we'll see in this article, those who did not win the argument, as in the war against Southern independence, the real history is not taught anymore, and they flat out just lie about it. Well, and that's what we are here to do today is help uh, lay bare some of the truths regarding federalism. And and in particular, there were two different groups of people. There were, you know, the Federalists, which we know John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison comprised the Federalists who wrote the Federalist papers or letters to the editor arguing why this Constitution should be ratified. But there were also anti-Federalists who said they had concerns and who argued against the Constitution as it was written. And maybe, maybe I could ask you to provide us just a little bit of uh, historical, uh, historical background. These anti-federalists, when we hear anti-anything, we sometimes get a little negative knee-jerk. Were they, were they really negative people, or were there some legit concerns? And have they been hung with a, uh, you know, a, a false label? Well, you know, by be, by being second to the table, they were kind of put on the defensive, weren't they? Because the first group proposing the national form of government simply called themselves the Federalists. So now they kind of got on this, this name where they were the anti-Federalists. So we have these people proposing something that's going to, per, uh, you know, make a more perfect union. And if you're against it, well, you're the <laughs> anti-whatever. So they, what they should have done was really the Virginia plan, though that contingent should have called themselves the nationalists and the anti-federalists really should have taken the negative uh, that the the name that doesn't have that negative connotation and called themselves the federalist and this is where we get so many uh, so much confusion and this is something we see over time Patrick Henry I smell a rat I'm not going to go Rhode Island, they never sent any delegates. Again, John uh, uh, Yates, Robert Yates, who was Brutus and wrote some of these anti-federalist papers, and John Lansing went back home to Governor Clinton in New York and said, we don't have the authority to do this. This isn't a more perfect union. It's a coup. So there were a lot of people that felt this was not a good idea. And there's a really good article from Mises.org where they uh, take an excerpt out of chapter five of Albert J. Knox's book, Jefferson. And this is, you know, you got to consider the source. This is part of my lawyer's training. And yeah, I'm going to bash lawyers on here as well. But what they say here is the Constitution looked good on paper, but it wasn't a popular document. As we've just been describing, people were suspicious of it and suspicious of the enabling legislation that this was going to put forth. And the grounds for this, what uh, the Constitution had been laid down under unacceptable auspices, 
its history has been that of a coup d'etat, something I just mentioned. Here's the crucial part. It had been drafted in the first place by men representing special economic interests. What did I say earlier? Consider the source. Four-fifths public creditors, one-third land speculators, one-fifth represented interests in shipping, manufacturing, merchandising. Here's the kicker. Most of them were lawyers. Ah. None of them represented (laughs) the interests of production. Who were the interests of production? Those that were the agrarians, the limited government, the Jeffersonians, that contingency. Interesting. Now, I, I have to tell you, there's, I suffer a little bit of cognitive dissonance every time that this subject comes up. And, and part of it is, is because of my religious upbringing. Um, I was raised and taught, you know, from an early age, look, the Constitution was, was created by men whom God raised up for that purpose. And, and I'll confess to you, Suzanne, just between you and me, I do believe that. Now, I also believe they were fallible. And I also believe they were prone to human nature. And Alexander Hamilton, I'm not exactly looking your direction, but some of them, I'm sure, were eager to, shall we say, exploit any oversights that they possibly could. So I don't think of it as a perfect document. I think that uh, I think it was remarkable. But I also, as I have, as I've read the anti-federalist arguments of why um, this isn't written tightly enough or this this isn't the way that we should do it, the anti-federalists were not wrong in their concerns they were they were prophetic one of my favorite prognostications came from john taylor of caroline who warned us of the unholy alliance between government and finance boy howdy was he correct huh yeah that that has turned out to be a little bit of a stumbling block for us <laughs> well and you and- know yeah. I, I just want to point out, it wasn't a slam dunk, okay, when the, when the con- Constitutional Convention uh, adjourned in 1787, it went back to the states for ratification, and, and that's, that's when a lot of this debate began. In fact, I think the first anti-federalist letter didn't appear until, what, 1789? Uh, possibly. I'm not, yeah, that's what it says in this article here, too, yes. All right. Well, and they were, they were afraid of an overbearing central government. Imagine that. <laughs> See, this is why it's worth considering what they had to say. We've got to take a very quick break. Suzanne Sherman is my guest, and I would encourage you, uh, if you want to join the conversation, do so. 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. I would really recommend go to her website, SuzanneCSherman.com, and and check out a lot of her writing. Suzanne, you provide a lot of stuff for the Tenth Amendment Center, among other things. Um, you're you're a bright young lady, and I'm glad to have you talking about uh, this uh, this anti-federalist uh, objection. To, to what the Federalists were doing, what those who had, had uh, written the Constitution were promoting it for, uh, for ratification were saying. Uh, we've got an article here from Gary Gallus, written for the Mises Institute, and he makes the case that they were actually quite prophetic in, in their concerns about how the Constitution wouldn't be enough to restrain government. 
and they've been proven correct. If we think about it, I mean, you know, we're going to get uh, before I get off the show here. We're going to talk about the uh, continuing resolution for the Patriot Act. Do you want to talk about overbearing? I don't think I can think of a better example. Interestingly enough, this article starts off with when they said most school kids are left with the impression that the Constitution was an inevitable follow up to the Declaration of Independence and the war with King George. But what they miss out on is the exciting debate that took place after, and that's where we get into the anti-federalist papers. But what I found interesting, and we talked about this on my show as well, was he ignores the fact that we had another system of government in place before this came about in its entirety, and that was the Articles of Confederation. And uh, it, it seems almost like with the war against Southern independence, if we just want to bury these facts, we're going to skip by the real history that perhaps the articles weren't as flawed as they're made out to be. You know, typically we're taught in school, oh, the articles were flawed. It was too hard to get gov uh, money from the states and it was too hard to make changes because they all had to agree. So they came up with this other system. Well, we're seeing what happens now when it's too easy to change. Yes, the founders put in Article 5 if you want to amend the Constitution. But now, rather than amending the Constitution with the convention of the states or a proposal by Congress with ratification of three-fourths of the state, we just have um, amendments every time the Supreme Court convenes. We have a constitutional amendment or convention. Only nobody invites the states to weigh in. And that is one of the focuses on the articles I write consistently for the, the 10th Amendment Center. And so, you know, when we ignore this fact, we ignore, uh, you know, are, have we really been told the truth on this matter? And then you'll start looking at things a different way. I have to wonder how many times in history, in various civilizations and circumstances, people have said, why didn't someone warn us? And if someone is saying that about, well, why didn't somebody <laughs> warn us about what, you know, there was potential uh, places where the Constitution could be abused. Here's your answer. There were people who warned us, and it were the anti-federalists. And they were many of the people that also, talking about being prophetic, they prognosticated the Civil War. They figured that if this government went through and became overbearing, that war was going to be the inevitable result of this. They had assumed that we would have remedies. Thomas Jefferson said nullification would be the rightful remedy in the event the general government uh, signs into effect laws that go beyond their delegated authority. Well, how's that working out for you now? You know, we had some early examples, for instance, with the of, uh, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions drafted by Jefferson and, and Madison, respectively, as a result of the um, Alien and Sedition Act. We had the 1835, uh, 1832 nullification crisis, where uh, nullification of tariffs in South Carolina ultimately was successful. But other other than that, we're not really seeing that. The closest modern day we have is 33 states in D.C. thumbing their nose uh, at, at the general government at Congress at, at their general prohibition against marijuana. So, But as far as abortion or as far as other issues or uh, firearms, we're not seeing it. Why? Because of grants. These Pell Grants yep. combine that with the federal judiciary, and that is the death knell for federalism. Amazing. Now let's let's dig into some of the specific oppositions. I know you had mentioned uh, you had mentioned one before. Uh, here's one that that I saw which caught my eye, and that is the idea that uh, the general welfare clause would be claimed for every law, or the uh, all all laws necessary and proper clause would be used to uh, to create authority where there was no clearly delegated authority. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what people don't understand is necessary and proper. That was one of the key arguments uh, very early on before the ink was even dry. I'm not going to be disrespectful and call it the holy parchment here. Well, I just did. Before the ink was even dry <laughs> on the parchment, you know, and Alexander Hamilton uh, in in arguing for a national bank said, hey, you know, the United States has the power to coin money. So this is an implied power. And some of the other founders had said, look, an implied uh, constitution by implication is equal to no constitution at all. That actually takes us back full circle to parliamentary sovereignty, where everything they declare is is constitutional. So this goes back very early. I think it was something built into the Constitution. And I, I have made the argument that the Constitution, the more I, I research, is really a Trojan horse. Also, look at the Commerce Clause. That is, that is devolved into the weakened do anything we want clause. And what we were taught in law school, I remember learning about that case where even my law school professor didn't come up, didn't, it was just, this is the way it is because politically connected lawyers and their black government issued costumes say so. So the ridiculousness of it is, you know, again, in the New Deal era, 1942, the government said, hey, if you grow wheat on your own property, and just that very act, even if it never leaves your property, affects interstate commerce. So we come up with this garbage called the affectation doctrine. And never once did this professor say this is not in conformance to what the states consented. And that's the problem. I have an article that the Abbeville Institute published called The Problem with Lawyers and the Constitution. And you can see that on my website, SuzanneCSherman.com. And it goes into great detail about how we are educated. And the problem is lawyers go on, many of them still today go on to become legislatures. And they think because all powers come now from Washington, D.C., because the Supreme Court says so, that they have the power to do pretty much whatever they want. Attorney General Barr, uh, Attorney General Barr now is going on with some some program to make sure that guns don't fall into the wrong hands. It's like the Second yeah. Amendment doesn't even exist. You know, these people, they don't even care about it. And the funny thing is, we get these flag-waving pro-gun constitutionalists that are, are, you know, waving the Constitution banner for the, the topics that they like. But then when it comes something like the constitutional authority for a border wall, wall on the border coming from the federal government, oh, yeah, we have to do that. Well, that's, there's no constitutional authority for regulating immigration or taking off the border, you know, walling off the border of a sovereign state. Wow. Oh, well, we have to have it. We have to have it. So there's no inconsistency. The pro-gun Molin Labe, you know, contingency sure cheers on these unconstitutional wars. So they, you know, they pick and choose what parts of the Constitution they wish to honor. And I, I don't want to sound smug here because this is this is exactly where I was just a few short years ago. The majority of the American public has no idea of, of either what the Federalist Papers no. are or who the writers were or, for that matter, what they were arguing. It's it's that big, glaring blind spot that uh, that leads to, you know, otherwise patriotic people cheering on things that actually further the deterioration of their own freedoms, the, the, the sovereignty of government that's closest to them and therefore most representative of them. And, and they don't recognize it as such. And the blind partisanship, as we were talking about before uh, we went live, was, for instance, here, um, 
Well, we'll get into the Patriot Act, but when we have certain justices, for instance, that side with us for the Fourth Amendment, you would think that conservatives would be cheering them on. But in the Mitchell case, which considered, which uh, had to do with warrantless blood draws for DUI cases, it was Sotomayor, Kagan, and Ginsburg who said, no, we really need to side with the Fourth Amendment and have law enforcement officers get a warrant. It was Justice Clarence Thomas that said, hey, if you're driving on the highway, you're suspected, you don't need a warrant. We don't care if you're unconscious. Abandon the partisanship. Stick to principles. These are true and wise words from the mouth of my friend Suzanne Sherman. And I hear the music playing, so we have got to take a break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages, you are listening to Loving Liberty. Voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. We are talking about the Anti-Federalists, among other things. And Suzanne, you had mentioned that today's kind of a big day. Speaking of uh, government going just a little too far, isn't uh, Congress supposed to vote on something kind of important today that uh, further diminishes what remaining liberties we have? Watch the other hand, huh? Right. <laughs> Thomas Thomas Massey uh, put out a tweet or also a Facebook post on this as well. But today, Congress is going to vote on continuing on a continuing resolution that hikes spending and extends the Patriot Act surveillance. You know, we talked about nomenclature earlier. Isn't it interesting? They use something as unpatriotic as mass government surveillance that would have had the founding generation shooting once again. We call it a Patriot Act. (laughs) And then we stand and salute and say it's for our own good. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, these people are dooming themselves by fighting for what we're taking for granted here. Yep. I've heard it said, and I I don't disagree, that uh, if there were people who deserve freedom, it's probably the folks in Hong Kong more so than us at this point. And I'm not saying that to to try to make people, you know, feel like, you know, you must hate America. No, I, I love it enough. I'm willing to say something unpopular to point out they actually care about it enough to stand up for it. We're too comfortable and too complacent. And here's more evidence. Well, when you say you hate America, when they tell you that, you know, I, I hate this government. I hate this national government and what it's become. If they went away, America would still exist. If D.C. had the limited power it was intended to have or went away in its entirety, you and I would still be able. The roads aren't going anywhere. We're still going to be the same people cling to this because they think that this is, you know, we were indoctrinated early in school. We are one nation, you know, indivisible with liberty, with liberty and justice for all. And here's what's so interesting too. this article here. This is from Reason.com that you sent me. They say Justin Amash and some progressive lawyers are trying to block the Patriot Act. Interestingly, it is um, Alexandria 
uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Omar, who are planning to oppose the Patriot Act, these were the people that were absolutely <laughs> hated by our so-called conservatives who were trying to block the Patriot Act. This goes back again with the Mitchell case, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Ginsburg, who were trying to protect our rights not to have police pull us over and stick a needle into our arm and draw blood. Clarence Thomas is the conservative darling who's perfectly okay with that. How do we get this? Partisanship. People can't see past their party loyalty. One of my favorite historians is Clyde Wilson, who said the founders never could have foreseen, as prophetic as they were, the mediocrity of the party system where candidates are more adept at winning offices than they are filling them. Case in point, always compare the conservative, can or not conservative, but the campaign, the person running for election, and then the person that ends up winning the election. And we can use Donald Trump for that. Uh, look, America first, getting out of these wars. Oh, wow, he, he shuffled around a few in Syria. Wow, big deal. Uh, we haven't brought anybody home. We're going to, I, I respect the Second Amendment. We need to respect the laws we already have. Well, you just contradicted yourself there. Uh, we're going to repeal uh, Obamacare. Now we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. You know, I think you, once, once you get in this hot seat, it's really difficult to turn away all this power you have. But again, so while we're being, being distracted with these insane impeachment uh, proceedings, we are uh, now talking about a continuing resolution, increasing the spending to further fund the Patriot Act. Remember, candidate Trump had said he was going to solve this deficit. What happened the first time we had to vote on the uh, budget ceiling again? Up it went. Oh, well, I'm going to do it this one time because we got to fund the military. Really? Really, we've got to fund the military. We're, we're, uh, we. How much more do we need to fund it? Then the second time he had to sign another budget increase and ignore the ceiling. I got to keep the government going. No, please shut it down. <laughs> wow. Now is this the part where I need to tell you? You just need to keep drinking that liberal Kool Aid. Suzanne. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you try to be consistent with your principles, you get a lot of this. So a lot of the conservatives say I'm liberal drinking the Kool-Aid and a lot of the liberals get upset with me. You know, what's interesting about this is some of the Democrats that are posed that are putting forth the Patriot Act, too, are at the same time criticizing Trump, but giving him more power. Meanwhile, Antifa is throwing, you know, concrete milkshakes at people that are fighting for their freedom. This is what happens when we have people purely blinded. When they're going to assault somebody over the color of a hat they're wearing, we have lost it. There's one way and one way out of this peaceful political divorce. How many times are you seeing talks of another civil war? I don't like to say another civil a war because we never had a, we a never lot. had a first one. There's a way to avoid this. If we have a civil war, who's going to win? You know who's going to win? The government. Yeah, and as, I don't know if you saw Brandon Smith's commentary last week. Not just the government, but the deep state and globalist actors who pull the levers mm -hmm. from behind the scenes. Yeah. If what, they can get Republicans and Democrats fighting each other, that's fine. Because, you know, the, the folks who, who aren't in harm's way are still going to be exercising power and exercising influence, while we do a pretty good job of killing one another off. 
Yeah, there's a good quote in this article here, too. Uh, Evan Greer is the deputy director of Fight for the Future, a digital rights advocacy group. He said on Twitter, very cool way to resist Trump by ensuring he continues <laughs> to have authoritar uh, terrifying authoritarian surveillance powers. That's that's a great point. Well, but and it illustrates the disconnect that that people who think, well, I'm standing for freedom have. Except I don't want to give any, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to let the terrorists win, and and they don't realize that 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 fear has manipulated them into supporting the very thing that is actually taking their freedoms away from them. The terrorists haven't done a thing to them. It's it's their own government in the guise of, hey, we're protecting you. Well, I wrote an article, um, again, for the 10th Amendment Center, and I called it Butchering the Fourth Amendment. And while this whole Me Too movement was hijacking the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, what was ignored was the real reason why he was a particularly awful nominee, and that's his take on privacy rights in the Fourth Amendment with regards to government uh, spying on us. And he asserts that the third-party doctrine, so when we're conversing and sending texts or emails and these the or going through phone calls, voicemail, what have you, and these go through third parties to transfer this information from one to the other, then you lose your expectation of privacy. Brian, how many times have you and I communicated without this third party? It's impossible. Yeah. We have to assume every conversation uh, online or over the phone is is being monitored. And, and you know, even if we're face to face. We're sitting next to each other having conversation. Guess what? If those phones are on our person or in the room, those mics are always on. I think I've introduced you to Greg Carpenter, who is our cybersecurity expert, former NSA, left his post because he didn't like what was going on. And he says, your phone's always on, your camera's going always on. But because now this goes through third, par uh, third party, you have no expectation of privacy. And, you know, metadata, the collection uh, Kavanaugh says is entirely consistent with the Fourth Amendment. He says the government's collection of this metadata from a third party, such as telecommunications providers, is not considered a search under the Fourth Amendment, at least. And where do we go? Not the ratification records, the Supreme Court's decision in Smith versus Maryland. So we're going to look what other black robe messiahs have said before we came, before we came along to see what we can do here. So in simple terms, this is a precedent that assumes that when you give information to a third party, bank, ISP, you give up your right to privacy. I think that is a premise the founders would have found absolutely repugnant, Trump appointee. Now, I have to say, um, and I got, I got to give a little tip of my hat to my friend Connor Boyack at Libertas Institute. Love him. Um, at the state level, that is one of the pieces of policy that, uh, that has been enacted here in the state of Utah that, uh, that actually seeks to, to correct that oversight, to, to make sure that it's not just assumed that, well, you know, you gave a third party your, your information, therefore the government should have access to it. And, and Utah's privacy laws have actually been strengthened. But I think uh, that's, that's an exception among a, a sea of states that, uh, that still don't do that. And it, personally, I believe more of the solutions that we're looking for are going to come from either the state level or, as you had mentioned earlier, um, through, through states nullifying overbearing federal laws. 
Well, and we're seeing that in places like, I think, San Francisco, Oakland, and other places where people, oh, those crazy cities. But guess what? They are thumbing their nose at facial recognition and actually banning it from municipalities and saying, no, you're not going to have your federal facial recognition stuff here. Can't use it. So that's a form of nullification. We need to see this all, you know, going on all over. And kudos to Connor for fighting that fight here. You know, I had some differences of opinion with him with regards to some of the implications of Prop 2 that weren't addressed. But overall, it's a big net gain, the work he's doing. Absolutely. We've got to take a quick break here. Suzanne Sherman is my guest this hour. Again, I encourage you to check out her website, SuzanneCSherman.com. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. We are covering a lot of territory this hour, so try to keep up. Let's see. Where do we go next? You had mentioned the 14th Amendment early on. Um, Should we revisit the 14th Amendment here, Suzanne? Yeah, we could do that. I, you know, I've been saying time and time again, the 14th Amendment, when we are taught in school, we do our, we do our uh, triangle, and I got really fancy. I like this. I used colored pencils for mine where we had the three branches of government and the arrows going back and forth and how we have this system of checks and balances. But what's completely ignored in the system of checks and balances is the states. So how they get around having the states assert their sovereignty with, you know, nullification and that sort of thing is this magical amendment called the 14th Amendment, which we are taught in school that we have the three branches of government, the Bill of Rights, and now comes along the 10th Amendment and the Bill of Rights that gives the states their police powers. Notice I was taught gives the states, lets the states have their police powers. And you think police powers is very limited. What we're supposed to have is everything not delegated goes to the state, very little. So what happens here is we end up with this notion now, well, along comes the 14th Amendment. Now everything in the Bill of Rights has applied to the states. Well, that's really cool because the Constitution's this magic argument, uh, document. The Bill of Rights gives us all these freedoms. It's only fair that the states have to adhere it to, to it as well. This was repugnant to the founding principles, and it ignores completely the fact that the states that created this limited government had their own constitutions in effect at the time. People think, well, the states can't have their own religions. That's, you know, violation of the Constitution. When the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were ratified, three states had their own state religions at the time. So California's constitution, for instance, would be controlling and determining the constitutionality of their gun laws. Their constitution is silent on them because it's not a power delegated to the general government. California has the exclusive authority to determine what their gun laws are going to be, and they can ban them if they want. This is what gets the gun rights enthusiasts so upset with me. And you saw a little bit of this on the article I wrote about the Remington case. What the Supreme Court did was uh, decline to hear a case that was um, the, the Supreme Court of the state of Connecticut 
uh, had said that the petitioners, the plaintiffs uh, arising out of the friends and family of the Sandy Hook massacre, could sue Remington Arms for violating a consumer protection law in the state of Connecticut aimed at marketing um, products in a way that would lead to criminal behavior. I don't think it's a meritorious lawsuit, but it ha the people in that state have a right to have their arguments heard and adjudicated. And what I said, if, if you go to the Supreme Court for this, obviously you roll the dice and run the risk of having the justices say, yeah, uh, you know what? We're going to we're going to deny carte blanche across this continental landmass plaintiffs as long as we have any firearms manufacturer um, from hearing this. You know, it could go either way. It could go good or bad. But if it goes bad like it did here, at least there can be some states that can deny liability. Otherwise, you run the risk like national reciprocity in my article where you have severe restrictions as opposed to differences in the states. You know, when we're in law school, we're taught when we read these law ca uh, cases due to inconsistency of state opinion, this case is ripe for review. That's the syllabus. <laughs> when we read the Supreme Court, you know, the case law as opposed to constitutional history, inconsistency of state opinion and rulings, ladies and gentlemen, is the heart and soul of federalism. Amen. No, yes. And, and, and the, the idea being the good ideas will win out. The, the states should be little laboratories. Each one of them, you know, should have the, the ability to make those determinations for themselves. If California wants to give out a free abortion with every oil change, that should be their prerogative. And if that's agreeable to the people of that state, well, then more power to them. If, you know, Nevada wants to have gambling and legalized prostitution, that should be their opinion. And the people who are not bound to stay in any state, you know, it's not like there's a wall that, that keeps you captive there, can vote with their feet and go where, for instance, the tax policies are more favorable. How many people have left the state of Illinois, for instance, in, in the last five or ten years because of excessive taxation and how difficult it is to do business. Likewise, California, that's a perfect example of it, and it extends to these other things. And, and besides, the 14th Amendment, in my opinion, gives the it puts the federal government uh, in, in a it, it gives it a moral status that I don't think it deserves. It, it places it morally above the states, and, and I don't think that's that's axiomatic. And it's in, it's in denial and in complete contravention to the intent of the 14th Amendment was as ratified, which was really simply to just give freed blacks the base, the rights of basic citizenship. Nowhere was it ever going to be uh, conceived that there was going to be some sort of substantive due process arising out of this. And because of the 14th Amendment, you know, again, I was guilty of doing this, too. When I was practicing law in my briefs, we have to say that my client's Fourth Amendment rights made, you know, made applicable to the states from the 14th Amendment. It gives no freedom to the people in the sovereign states to come up with their own social policies. So when you have marriage, rulings on firearms, rulings on all these hot topics, social issues we have here, every one of them becomes a national point of contention. That's why everybody's fighting right now. And there's and that's go ahead. There's another aspect, too, that, that came to mind as you're describing this, and that is it, it puts the responsibility back on the people themselves. 
And this is something that I fear we have, have lost in a big way. When, when we go and we vote in our elections, more often than not, you ask people, what are you voting for? And, and most people tell you, we're voting for leaders. Do you need someone to lead you? I mean, are you are you a pet? Do you need to be put on a leash and led? No. What you need are people who you elect as representatives. In other words, you have the ability to make your own decisions, to chart out your own life. They represent you in government to make sure that you are free to make those decisions with as little interference as possible. And sadly, you know, first of all, there's no hope trying to fix this as at a national level. What I've said from about the 14th Amendment, I encourage anybody that's really interested to read Government by Judiciary by Raoul Berger. Fascinating read that talks about how the federal judiciary has been weaponized to completely invert the federal system that was consented to during the ratification debates that we mentioned earlier. And the more I think about this, I even at a local level, we see people wanting more government more leadership, more taxation for more policy. Some at County Prop 6, I don't even know if it won or lost, what's increase in property <laughs> taxes to pay for athletics. I cannot, as I examine this more and more, come up with any kind of justifiable moral form of government, which brings us to a really great quote before we close out, because I know we're running short, Robert Higgs If anarchists are idealists, they may simply be likened to someone who finds himself swimming in a cesspool and rather than paddling about and looking for the area with the least amount of floating feces, seeks to climb out of the pool completely. Brian, I want out. Oh, (laughs) no, I want out of the pool. (laughs) That is a vivid example. And, and, And I agree with him. But but, you know, of course, by doing so, you risk being labeled as a madman or a madwoman because you're not because uh, you're not swimming in the cesspool with everybody else. Well, once again, you know, we have these these misrepresentations of what terms actually mean. For instance, anarchy. People think it's going to have chaos. It's going to result in lawless behavior. Well, we don't really know because we don't have a system of that, of complete voluntarism. But we sure know, again, paraphrasing Robert Higgs, about the atrocities that government is capable of committing. Do we not? You know, there's a great video. You can look it up on YouTube called Slab City, and it shows these people living not in an ideal community, but it's a community without government, but is not a community without laws. We have to escape this Hobbesian notion that absent government, we're all going to be killing and robbing each other. Here, here. All right, we're down to one minute here, Suzanne. Let's. Uh, I want to take a minute here to give people the opportunity to access more of your writings, to listen to your show when they have the chance as well. Where and when can you be heard? Uh, I was on this morning, and if you can't hear us live, I have it. It's a Cerberus Radio Network. Follow me on Facebook, Suzanne Sherman, or just go to my website, SuzanneCSherman.com. We have a SoundCloud bar. You can listen to archived shows, and then the published articles and blogs are there. Blogs primarily focus on prepping, but I have a couple, my last two on the red flag laws. I highly recommend people check out. And I Thank want you. you. I want you to know Suzanne is well-connected. She has amazing guests, people who really know their stuff, and there's no, you know, you're, you don't bind people to agree with everything you say, but you'll be wiser for having heard it, whether you agree or not. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking with you again. Maybe Thursday we can get together and do this again. I'd like that. Okay. Suzanne Sherman's been my guest. Stick around. Eric Peters in the next hour. Loving Liberty continues after news.
Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.